Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by ACA President Dr Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. If you're like me and you grew up in the 80s, then your experience of video games probably was something like the video arcade, a fistful of 20-cent pieces, Pac-Man, and maybe Space Invaders. But of course, uh, children growing up today have a completely different experience of video games. We have things like Grand Theft Auto, things like Fortnite, and certainly a longer time spent generally by children playing these sorts of games. Not surprisingly, this is a concern for certainly some parents and some health practitioners. And today I'm gonna have the pleasure of speaking to someone who has dedicated a good deal of his life into studying the effects that these games may have on the developing neurology. In a moment, we're gonna be speaking with Dr. Wayne Warburton, who is Associate Professor of Development Psychology at Macquarie University, and is also a registered psychologist. He has a strong interest, as I said, in the fields of aggressive behavior, media psychology, and parenting. His publications in scientific journals and books are primarily on the topics around aggressive behavior and the impact of violent and pro-social media. And Dr. Warburton is co-author of several international reports on this topic. He's won more than 25 awards for his scholarship and, and teaching, including uh, from the Australian Psychological Society, and most recently, the Distinguished Scientific Contribution to Media Psychology, awarded by the American Psychological Association just in 2018. Hi, Wayne, and welcome to the ACA podcast. Hi, Anthony. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join us today. Now, obviously, most parents recognise that extended periods at the screen are not good for their children. Uh, your take on it is very much from an understanding of how this behaviour impacts on neurological development. So maybe for our ACA listeners, we can start by um, perhaps you taking us through Neuroscience 101. And in particular, when are those critical stages of neurological development? Okay, thanks, Anthony. Look, I think the key stages are not too different to what parents know, in particular the first one, which is those first few years of life, because in that first few years of life, that child's brain is wiring up every second of every day at a very rapid rate. In fact, a young child's brain wires up so much that by the time they're three years old, they've got three times as many connections in their brain as an adult does, and their brain uses about three times as much glucose as the adult brain. Then later on in um, development, in the teenage years, you see this quite substantial change in children. One of the things that they do is that their brain shed a lot of those connections. So they shed about 70% of those neural connections. So things that they're not doing, things that have turned out not to be important to them, those connections essentially are lost. The things that they continue to do and that stay important to them, those connections stay wired in. The second thing that you see in the teenage years is that the brain completes the development of this fatty sheath around the neurons called the myelin sheath. And because neurons essentially run electrochemically, they're like any other electrical wire, they need insulation around it. 
before that's fully developed, you know, there's not so much efficiency with the way the neurons work. But once you put that fatty sheath on the neuron, the brain works far more effectively and efficiently, just like it would when you put um, a plastic coating on an electric wire. And so in the teenage years, you see this incredible growth in what children are able to do, how efficiently their brains work, and you see this in the ability to uh, have a lot of abstract thinking, complex problem solving, you know, very good cognitive and mental processes. I think the key to remember for all people and all parents is that differently to the way people thought about the old days, about the brain being set in concrete by the time you're an adult, the way we think now is that the human brain is wiring up constantly every day of our life in response to what we experience. And so what we experience is, is quite important because our brain reflects what's happening. A lot happens in childhood, but it continues right through the lifespan until the day we die. And you know, one of the keys to a good, happy, healthy life is you know, maintaining um, good brain health, keeping mentally active, keeping that brain alert, using any new neurons that we get um, by entering into lots of things that tax our brain and get us to think deeply. I think that uh, neuroplastic model, which I think you, you didn't use that word, but I understand you're referring to, obviously is something that's become, well, it's really a, a buzzword for a long time now, um, not just in the research world, but certainly at a practitioner and even um, sort of a, um, you know, the, the common public are, are familiar with that term. Um, what they might not be as familiar with is um, is the prefrontal cortex, and, and particularly that's one of the areas in the brain that is a little bit later to develop. It's that cognitive, executive thinking part of the brain, and, and I'm assuming that this development, which um, happens a little bit later on, will determine how a child interacts with their environment, which might be different to the way an adult interacts with their environment. Can you speak a little bit to that? Sure. So the prefrontal cortex in particular is the brain that does have a lot of those very advanced functions where we control our impulses, where we think through the consequences of our behaviour, when we do, do complex problem solving and planning for the future. And so how the prefrontal cortex is working is, is very important. And as you alluded to, it's not really fully developed um, into adulthood. You know, we, we think now it, it's quite late in the 20s and maybe even into the early 30s for men and certainly into the mid to late 20s for women. And so you have this long period of life when the middle of your brain where you have emotions and memory and fight and flight and a whole lot of things that happen automatically, that's kind of fully developed early in life, maybe three, four years of age. But this part of the brain where we have these higher functions isn't developed into much later in life. So you have this long period right through into the 20s the part of the brain is, is working pretty effectively and the other part is still, you know, essentially under construction. That does make children, I think, more vulnerable to some things, um, you know, more vulnerable to advertising and more vulnerable to things that probably speak to their emotions, for example, because that part of the brain helps us to manage our emotions. Um, but what it doesn't mean is that when you get full maturity, you're also not vulnerable to things. You know, adults are still vulnerable to advertising, they're still vulnerable to the messages of media, the effects that we see in media. They may affect children a little more and we're not 100% sure how much. You know, the research suggests perhaps a little, but it certainly affects adults as well and that's very important for people to remember that you know, nobody is really immune. 
there's no doubt that the society today is rapidly changing. Um, you know, I, I still remember in my 20s when uh, my first friend got a mobile phone and it was this massive brick and um, it was a bit of a status for, symbol for him at the time. Uh, but nowadays there are more mobile phones than people in Australia. Um, so clearly technology is racing forwards. Um, is this use of video games, is, is it really a problem or, or do you think it's a generational change that we're just sort of catching up and getting used to? A bit like, you know, my grandparents probably complained that my parents listened to too much rock and roll music and, and that was going to uh, poison their minds eventually. Is, is it something that we need to be genuinely concerned about or is it just we're getting used to change? I think the key to anything to do with media is the same as almost any other thing in life, which is if it stays within the bounds of moderation, it's generally a good thing. Uh, and most media products really aren't that much of a problem if people have moderate use. What we start to see are problems when we see lots and lots of use. You know, if you we know that a lot of exposure to violent media does have a, have a small measurable effect on aggressive behaviour, and we know that people who spend a great deal in, of time in front of screens, and some of them to the levels of you know, what we would think of as being very much like an addiction. When it gets to those sorts of levels, you see mental health problems, you see physical problems, um, and, and possibly problems um, related to social isolation because human beings genetically need to touch and smell and be in close proximity to other humans. You know, being virtually connected doesn't do what nature needs. You know, you don't release oxytocin when somebody is talking to you, you know, over Skype. Yes. You actually need physical touch for that. And so when things get out of balance, you can you can get these other problems. You know, people who just don't have very much human contact at all, they tend to have immune systems that don't work as well. Um, they tend to have poor physical health. They often have mental health problems, um, depression and other you know, issues that can arise. And, you know, with those sorts of people, you really need to work with them, I believe, to kind of help them bring their life back into that sort of balance so they're getting enough of all of the other things they need in their life so that, you know, things get restored to some sort of um, normality. That certainly makes great sense. I guess the challenge, and, and you've sort of outlined there, that these things are a bit of a continuum um, and I'm sure there's a big grey zone area between healthy use, concerned use and um, addictive use. How how common is screen addiction and and what's the line that someone has to cross over before they go into that uh, i guess a addicted diagnosis i think generally speaking we think about two lines and we do this with other similar things so for example people with problem gambling they normally get put onto um, a continuum, and they're categorised in three ways. You know, about half to 1% of people who are problem gamblers you would think of as, as being addicted gamblers. So they would meet um, a gambling disorder criteria um, in terms of a psychiatric diagnosis. But there's another few percent of people who we think of as problematic gamblers, and they're people for whom gambling has a significant impact on an important part of their life. Um, a negative impact, and we worry about those, but not quite as much, and then those we would think of as at risk. Well, it's the same with screens, you know, things like gaming disorder and problematic internet use and other issues related to screen use. What we typically find is about 2%, you know, more recently maybe perhaps up to 3% 
of um, people, um, particularly young people, have this addiction-level problem with screens where they would meet the sorts of criteria you would see with another addiction where you would see, you know, preoccupation with it, thinking about it lots of the time, trying to stop and can't. It's having a big impact on lots of areas of their life, but they're still not stopping. It's replacing other things that are important to them. They might be lying about how much they're doing it. It's impacting their relationships and a whole bunch of other things. And, you know, those kids we worry about quite a lot because that's quite a severe level of impact on their life. And if it goes on for about 12 months or more, then we start to think, you know, that's a that's a pretty serious problem. About 10% of kids across most Western countries, you know, somewhere around that figure, we think of as having these problematic levels of use where the amount of time they're spending on a screen or playing a game or whatever it is, is impacting at least one important area of their life. Right? Mm-hmm. They're not quite at that addiction level where really we're, looking for treatment and we're clinically pretty worried but they might be struggling at school they might be having mental health issues because of it they might have some other um, significant problem in their life that's due to that and so it's problematic and we're worried about them and you know really we still would probably be intervening with those kids to kind of draw them back towards that moderate use now they don't seem like huge numbers but in a country like australia which you know isn't huge we're still talking about a large amount of amount of kids. You know, if you've got a million children and it's 2% of them, that's 20,000 that might have addiction-level problems and so on. So they're not huge percentages, but they're, they're important. Now, we just completed a study um, three or four weeks ago of 1,000 school kids and we tested them for addiction levels of um, what's known as internet gaming disorder. So that's um, using it. Um, internet-based games to, to an addiction-type level, and we found that 2.8% of those kids met those criteria. Mm. And like you said, that's the, these are the kids that are really in, in, in trouble. Then these aren't necessarily the kids who may be affecting their lives. And, and to me, 2.8%, you know, when you add up all the kids, that's a lot of kids that are having these kind of issues. Absolutely. Well, one thing that um, I'm interested in is, is there a, um, a type of child or person that is more vulnerable to addiction and for example if someone has a a gaming addiction uh, or a screen addiction of some type are they therefore more vulnerable to having a gambling addiction or or a substance abuse addiction later in life okay look i'm going to answer that question in two parts the first part is are there any people who are more vulnerable to things like a gaming addiction and Um, We've done some research in this area and and other people have too. And the sorts of kids who tend to develop serious problems with it are often kids who don't have basic needs met by other things in their everyday life. So they might be lower in self-esteem. They might might not have many friends. They might not be very good socially. They might not be good at many things. But when they go online, you know, they have lots of friends, they feel quite powerful, they have lots yeah. of control over what they do, they have a sense of mastery over what they're doing. And when they're behind the screen or playing the game, they, they feel fantastic. Yeah. The problem is, that, of course, when the screen goes off, all of that kind of disappears and they're, you know, they're real-life selves again. And so the, the screen keeps drawing those kind of kids back because yeah. it keeps meeting those needs for them. And if you combine that with a kid who doesn't have very good self-control or he's quite impulsive or who has other, you know, issues with self-management, that's kind of a perfect storm for 
or addiction. So those are the kids that we think of as as probably being more at risk, and particularly if they come from families where there are problems as well. In terms of if they have a predisposition for this addiction, does it predispose them to other addictions? I mean, there is some debate about that, but my experience would be um, typically yes. Often people who um, become addicted to one thing might you know, manage that addiction and they might swap it for another. If you go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, for example, you'd probably be overwhelmed by the cigarette smoke, you know, or, yeah. or whatever. And I think that there are some people who are predisposed to, to be addicted. And, and that's essentially, I think, because we think of addiction differently now. 20 years ago, people thought of addiction in terms of the drug that you used, you know, setting up these kind of cravings in the body and these withdrawal symptoms, and it was all very physical and very much about the effect of the drug on the body. We've changed the way we define addiction and we've changed the way we think about addiction because essentially addiction is something that occurs in the brain. Mm. It's a setting up of the reward circuit in such a way that you come to crave something and anticipate this kind of reward when you get it and eventually you want it so much that you keep craving it and wanting it even when it doesn't bring you pleasure anymore. Yes. And in the brain, you can you can kind of see the way that works. Well, it doesn't matter whether it's a drug, whether it's problem gambling and now with more recent evidence on screen addictions, in terms of what's happening in the brain, it looks very, very similar. And so when we think about addictions, we tend to think about something that turns the brain on in a particular way. Mm. And I think that some people do have a predisposition for the brain to respond to particular things in this way that can you know, become a bit of an addiction for them. That comment there, I think, is a good segue into my next question, which is uh, about reward and dopamine versus happiness and how the different neurochemical effects occur in the in the brain and, and perhaps relating this to the way that you know games like Fortnite and etc are designed to to I guess promote that reward dopamine activity in the brain sure look I think one of the great misunderstandings in modern culture is that pleasure and happiness are the same thing but actually in terms of human experience and in terms of what's happening in the brain, they're very different things. So pleasure is pretty much, in you know, in most ways related to feeling aroused, to the release of dopamine, to the arousal of particular pleasure centres like the nucleus accumbens in the brain, and differs a lot from something like happiness, which is generally linked with this kind of sense of contentment, actually feeling relaxed rather than aroused, and just feeling, you know, to but life is good, and that, that's more linked with a neurotransmitter called serotonin, which uh, most people are aware of because most um, drugs, for example, that treat depression increase serotonin levels. Yes. One of the problems, of course, is that, you know, in some ways and in some circumstances, you know, if you're releasing a lot of dopamine, that can come at the expense of serotonin, and, um, you know, and certainly releasing lots of dopamine doesn't... Um, necessarily increase serotonin or make you feel happy. And, in fact, when you see addicts who are constantly flooding their brain with dopamine, they don't often seem happy. You know, you see very few happy addicts. Yes. You know, happiness and, and pleasure are different things. They work differently in the brain. And a lot of people think that if, you know, I'm going to get this platform, it's going to make me happy. 
But what it is, does for people is that if you, you know, play that game or you go onto that social media platform, what's happening is that it's arousing and it releases dopamine and there's this kind of pleasure component. And most of the games currently being used and most of the social media platforms currently being used are deliberately designed to release dopamine in a particular way. One of the things that we know about dopamine is that it can become problematic and it certainly um, is most rewarding when it comes in the anticipation of something. Right. So you think something good is going to happen, that's when the dopamine is released and that's when you kind of, you know, there's a lot of pleasure in that anticipation of something good coming. If that good thing that's coming, we know it's coming but we don't know when, the brain is kind of constantly releasing dopamine yes. in anticipation of it, but we don't quite know when it's coming. So things that release dopamine and, and give us that kind of hit, but in a, in a random schedule so you don't know when it's coming, really kind of trick the brain in, into, this, into a lot of dopamine release. And that, I think, makes it easy to kind of set up that pattern of brain activation that we see in people with addiction, you know, that, that constant seeking. So people who make these games, they use a number of strategies and it would take an entire podcast to go through them all. But often, you know, they'll have a game or they'll have a platform, they'll make it as addictive as they can, but then they'll send it to somewhere like Dopamine Labs. I think they've changed their name to Boundless Mind now, but you get the idea. <laughs> and then these neuroscientists will take that, that digital product and they'll tinker with it and test it and work on it to make it maximally addictive to um, release dopamine not only in the maximal amount but also in the sort of pattern that we see in addiction. And the other thing that is quite common is for these sorts of platforms to be linked to an artificial intelligence and the artificial intelligence uses its extreme computing power to keep a profile of every user in real time looking for the sorts of vulnerabilities that they can um, use in order to tailor the experience of the person with that game or that platform or that social media product so that it targets them best. And that's what I feel artificial intelligence do best. You know, they, if you, um, you may have seen the article in The Australian a couple of years back where some documentation from Facebook was uncovered and it had boasted to people advertising that we can tell you in real time about when one of your one of our users is feeling lonely or vulnerable in a particular way and then we can target your advertising to it we can target the experience to them in those micro moments whilst our artificial intelligence you know makes sense of what's happening in that person's life so you have this kind of this combination of of, of making it maximally addictive with the way you, you structure it and then you create this personalised experience for each mm. user that's monitored moment by moment by the artificial intelligence so that um, it gives every person a different experience, one that speaks to them more personally. And together those things really make it quite hard to leave the screen. You know, some of the other things that they'll do is that they'll make things easy to use or target the vulnerabilities. And there are these constant notifications that come to draw your attention back to the screen, you know, banners, prompts, cues, triggers, 
you leave the screen, but something keeps drawing you back. Yeah. And using all of these little tricks, they make it very, very difficult for you to leave the screen. How do we know about it? Because some of the CEOs and highly placed people, you know, Sean Parker, for example, who I think was the president of Facebook and others, have, have felt uncomfortable about what their companies are doing and they've kind of blown a whistle and come out publicly and said, this is the way that we're working. This is, this is the business model that we use. We use an addiction model to get people in because in order for our products to stay competitive in the market, that's the gold standard. It really is quite frightening. It reminds me, I think, of uh, where the cigarette smoking industry was, you know, 20 or 30 years ago in terms of the way that um, that media and commercialism can today can manipulate the thoughts, behaviours and, um, and actions that people are taking day-to-day in their lives and, um, and, as you said, doing it quite often subconsciously. Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that people like Boundless Mind say openly is that not only can we do this, but we can do it outside people's conscious awareness. Mm. We do it and people don't know they're being manipulated in this way. You mentioned about the changes with um, you know, neurotransmitters and in particular dopamine, and that's clearly at least a, a short-term effect. Is there longer-term effects? Uh, are there structural changes that can occur um, in the brain of a, a screen-addicted person? Look, there are. And... Before I, I talk about them, I, I don't want to be alarmist about it because the human brain actually can change structure. And, you know, you would have seen this as a chiropractor and I'm sure there are a number of phenomena where you, you see changes to the, to, the, to the structure of a brain. Um, we know that London cab drivers, for example, you know, during the years when they're studying endlessly to memorise all those streets in London, their hippocampuses can grow to almost three times the size with all of that use. And so... It's, it's common for the human brain to change in structure and changes are often temporary based on use. In terms of screen use, you know, there are a number of studies that so, show structural changes and I guess the take-home message is that the way that those structural changes happen kind of depend on the nature of your use. So a recent study that I read, for example, showed that if you played video games in a particular way that was you know, quite thoughtful and engaged a lot of the higher processes in the brain, what they saw was an increase in, in brain mass in particular areas. But people who using that media, I guess, a little bit more mindlessly, it was just more pure entertainment and there was less switched on, they had what we call atrophy, which is a loss of tissue in those kinds of areas. And I would suspect, and the studies tend to suggest that this is true, that in particular, those people who have a lot of exposure to screens with things that aren't really making their brains work very hard tend to be the ones probably who are seeing these changes, which can include, you know, atrophy into that in that prefrontal cortex, which is that really mm. crucial part of the brain where we have a lot of those higher functions. So uh, I guess then if we're going to have a look at, in, at again, perhaps the more the uh, addicted person, um, what are the what are the what are the outcomes? You mentioned about things like social isolation and depression, but perhaps just if you uh, go through that list of, of of eventual outcomes that will occur in an addicted person. I think when people have addiction levels, one of one of the things that we see are behavioural changes. Now, we know, for example, that when we're in front of a lot of entertainment media, for example, like we know this with violent video games, that 
quite often there's a lot less activation in that prefrontal cortex where we have those higher functions. Um, and one thing that one thing that a lot of parents report, and that you know we've seen in a lot of clinical casework, is that kids who spend a lot of time in front of screens often have trouble controlling their behaviour when the parents ask them to stop. So we see lots of kids throwing tantrums, yelling, screaming, and an increasing number of kids who are quite violent, um, including violent to the point of parents taking out apprehended violence orders against their children, you know, when they try, try to take the screens away. So we, we, we see these behavioural changes. We see changes to sleep patterns, um, and sleep is crucial for development. So if things that interfere with sleep tend to interfere they have this flow-on effect to lots of other areas of development because sleep is such an important thing. We see an increase in irritability, um, often more depression and anxiety um, in those kids. But we see physiological changes too, you know, and as a chiropractor, you, you'll be aware that, mm. you know, sitting at a screen hour after hour after hour has a pretty negative effect on um, the musculoskeletal system, you can see RSI injuries, you see all sorts of other problems as well. So we see those physical problems. And sometimes we, we see problems at a level where, where kids die. Um, and, you know, there are lots of famous cases, and I, and I won't go through them all, but, you know, there, there was a, a famous case of, um, you know, parents who, who let their child get very, very sick because they were, you know, gaming for days on end and, and not caring for their child. There are, there are people who have died at the screen and essentially died from heart failure or um, a blood clot on the lung because they've been playing for such a long period of time that they're not producing and they haven't been taking in enough electrolytes to keep their heart beating and having a high level of arousal and so on. I've seen kids who have who have just been locked in their room for long periods of time. I saw one person who hadn't been out of their room for seven years. Oh, my goodness. You see kids who just don't go to school, you know, they miss years of schooling. And, you know, those, you know, at the addiction level, the outcomes are, are pretty difficult for, for kids. You know, you see, often see quite heavy weight gain. And those things can kind of accumulate where you, where you stop coming out of your room, you become quite heavy, you don't have any friends outside, you're missing school, you're not good at anything else, you're not particularly skilled socially, and for every year that you know, that goes on, it becomes much more difficult to get out and into the real world and to make things happen outside of the digital world. Yeah. And for, some, for some kids that becomes very, very difficult for them. And it takes a lot of work from their parents and from um, treating therapists and others to kind of, you know, get them back on track. So let, let's finish with, obviously, you know, what you've gone through there, as you, uh, as you mentioned, is the extreme end of, uh, of a gaming addiction. But for the parents who are just concerned that maybe they, they don't want their children to, to develop an addiction or, or they're concerned that their child's already using uh, screen time far too much, what are, what are the simple tips that you would give as a psychologist to those parents? Look, I don't want to sound alarmist because we're talking about 2 or 3% of kids with a really serious problem, maybe 10% that we're worried about. The vast majority of kids, you know, have a lot of pleasure from media, learn a lot from media, and it's a good thing in their life. So what we want 
I guess, as psychologists, is to encourage parents to to encourage in their children this kind of moderate use where they get all the benefits of media, you know, that connection and the knowledge and all of the things that you can you can get from media and bypass some of the negative impacts that you might get from negative content like violent content or you might get from overuse. And the best way to do that, I think, is to work with your kids towards what I think of as a healthy media diet, which is very like a healthy food diet because the same principles apply. With food, you don't want too much or too little. So you're looking for this kind of middle ground. And when it comes to, you know, recreational media consumption, it's often just sitting down as a family and working with the child to work out how much together you think is this kind of healthy, moderate middle ground and working out as a family how to, how to manage around that amount. And then in terms of food, you know, everybody knows the food pyramid, you know, lots of leafy green vegetables, not so much protein, only a small amount of fats, and there's some things, you know, you probably wouldn't want to ingest at all. Well, it's the same with media. You know, I'm not particularly prescriptive about what people what your experience, but I think kids should know, look, the brain wires up every second of every day in response to what you experience. If what you're experiencing is really violent or negative or antisocial, then, you know, that's going to have an impact on you. It's going to be small, but it's going to have an impact on you. If what you're exposed to is educational and pro-social and, and, you know, helps you to develop as a person, then that has also a positive effect on you. Again, small but important. So what you want to aim for is more of the good stuff, not so much of the unhelpful stuff. You know the impact that they're all going to have on you, so you kind of choose like the food pyramid to have a lot less of those things that you know aren't as helpful and a lot more of the green leafy vegetables of the media world, you know, the things that you know are good. And then the third thing with food is that it has to work at the age. If you're two years old and you have growing bones, full cream milk is great. If you're 90 years old and your arteries are 95% blocked, then milk's not so, full cream milk's not such a great idea. And it's the same with kids. You know, kids respond to media differently at different ages. And just to give you one example, small kids are frightened of the way things appear on the surface. Mm-hmm. If someone looks ugly and frightening, they'll be frightened of that thing. Even if an adult looks and says, no, that person has a heart of gold or that's actually the good person in this, you know, a small child doesn't see that because they're judging things on the surface criteria. First time time looking at Santa Claus, I would say, would fit that one, wouldn't it? Yeah, or any clown. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) Sorry, I still have my clown thing. The clown's terrifying me. Anyway, enough of me. You get to 12 years old, you're scared of different things, right? You, you know there are no monsters. You look at that ugly person with the heart of gold, you know they got a heart of gold. But different things scare you, right? You turn on the news and you see a shooting in a school like your school or you see a, a fire burning a house like your house and you, by abstract thinking, you can think, wow, that could happen to me or my friends or at my school or my house. And yeah. that's what scares you. So you have to kind of be aware of the child's age. The secret is to kind of aim for that middle ground, not too much, not too little, more of the good stuff, make sure it kind of works at the child's age. And if you follow those kind of principles, generally speaking, you're going to have a better chance of getting all of the good stuff out of the media and kind of bypassing some of the negative effects that some people are going to have trouble with. Wayne, thank you so much for uh, spending time on the podcast today. I think you've um, summarised that um, those tips really beautifully and I think this is going to be the sort of information that's going to be of great interest to practitioners and parents. Uh, I really appreciate uh, the work you do in this field. It's very important, as you said, you know, it's where 
whether we like it or not, we're in a technological world and uh, moderation is always going to be the key. Thanks, Anthony. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence and look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast. Podcast.